and welcome to Historical Hi-Fi. This podcast is for all things history. If you study history or just have a general fascination with history, tune in. We'll delve into the research of UQ's own historians, find out what captivates them, what drives them, the most interesting of facts they've stumbled across so far, and what they're yet to explore in greater depth. My name is Tiani Miller. I'm a history undergraduate at the University of Queensland, and this podcast was published by the UQ Modern History Society. Today, we are lucky enough to host Associate Professor in History, Andrew Bunnell, an expert in modern German and European history. He holds the position of editor for the history for the Australian Journal of Politics and History, in addition to contributing to a range of internationally recognized journals, such as the European History Quarterly, French History and Civilization, German History and Labor History. Andrew has published a number of incredible books, including one this year, titled Red Banners, Books and Beer Mugs, The Mental World of German Social Democrats, 1863 to 1914. Other key works include Shylock in Germany and The People's State in Imperial Germany. Thank you for joining us on Historical Hi-Fi today, Andrew. We're going to start off by delving into the very beginning. What inspired you to pursue a career in historical research? Has it always been on the cards, or was there a point in which you knew this is something that you wanted to pursue? Thanks, Tiani. I guess I was always fascinated with history, and when I was in primary school, I started reading every history book I could get my hands on, and uh, uh, so there wasn't really a a moment when I decided that that was what I wanted to do. It's just a fascination I kept pursuing and uh, kept kept going until... uh, Till it, uh, you know, until I was able to make a living out of it, I suppose. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I was just always interested in, in history, and uh, you know, would you know, work my way through the history books in the library. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that as well. And from memory, I recall you telling me that you spent some time studying abroad in Germany and, and researching in Germany as well. What were your experiences like studying abroad? And after travelling resumes, hopefully, would you recommend this experience to other history students? Yes, I I spent three semesters uh, studying in Germany, Uh, one semester in Marburg uh, at the end of my third year uh, of the BA, and then uh, between doing honours and starting the PhD, I had two semesters in Berlin. And, uh, you know, I would definitely recommend if uh, people are interested in history, unless you want to concentrate purely on, say, Australian history, or the history of English-speaking countries, learn languages and travel and immerse yourself in languages and, and the culture and literature and, and, and the places uh, that you study because the, the, the more time you spend in these other countries and, uh, and immerse yourself in a language and as well as in the libraries and archives, then, then the, you know, the more your work will benefit from that, I think. Uh, plus it's, you know, uh, endlessly interesting to uh, you know get to the stage where you can see a culture from the inside by being able to work in a language and, uh, and and function in another in in an, you know in another in another culture in another language. So uh, I definitely recommend that. I uh, had to uh, cut short a, a, start, a research trip to Germany uh, just over a year ago in in March last year I was in Germany for two weeks and had to come back uh, when everything started closing down and the uh, you know, libraries and archives were all shutting and uh, and we were getting messages to return home so uh, 
so I'm, I'm I'm hoping I'll be able to resume the overseas research uh, yeah. uh, when 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 things settle down. But it's hard to predict when that'll be at the moment. Yeah, hopefully soon. Like I already know of every student that I've spoken to that's travelled abroad. They cited that as the best experience in their university life because you really get to immerse in that culture and. When you actually go over there in the country and immerse yourself in the culture and you're forced to speak that language, you learn so much more when you're actually over there. And just the benefits of speaking another language and being able to read another language combined with history, it's amazing, really. Because you speak multiple languages, right? You speak German, you speak some French. Yeah, well, I, I probably, I'd say, say I read a number of languages. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, German I'm fluent in, I can get by in French and Italian, but... Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I can certainly read them. Uh, uh, I can read Dutch, but I'm pretty rusty yeah. in that, haven't practiced it much. And I've had a couple of starts at Russian, but haven't got very far with, yeah. with Russian. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'd like to go to some of these places and spend more time and improve my languages. Uh, and uh, you know, I visited Poland a couple of times in my last research trips and find Poland fascinating, partly because of the layers of... German and Polish history, yeah, uh, uh, that uh, and and other Central European histories that are kind of piled up on top of each other in in, in Poland, and uh, it's it's quite eye opening to go there and see things uh, that uh, it's not the same as reading about them. If you go to cities like Gdansk and uh, get a feel for the history on the spot, it's uh, you know quite quite different from from reading or Warsaw or anywhere else. But uh, you know Germany, I know quite well now. Yes, and gathering the lived experiences of people's histories in those areas is a lot different than opening up a book and reading about it because you actually get to feel the emotion of that experience and that intergenerational um, experience as well. Now, branching away from specifically personal experiences, I would like to take this opportunity to delve into some more opinion-orientated topics, starting within the university gates. So when I tell my peers I study history, most of whom study STEM or economics, finance, that sort of thing, I'm often met with a response along the same lines. So, wow, I always loved history at school. Sometimes I wish I continued studying it in university. What role, if any, do you believe universities and neoliberal policies play in skewing student decisions away from the humanities? Well, you know, the current federal government is trying to discourage students from uh, studying humanities by charging them 90% of the cost of a humanities degree. Uh, which seems unjustifiable in terms of any career outcomes because uh, the numbers show that uh, BA graduates aren't actually uh, more unemployed than, say, people with BSCs or other first degrees. And, uh, you know, law used to be seen as a safe subject, but uh, it's many years now that we passed the point at which uh, the uh, number of people studying law uh, exceeded the number of people practicing law so uh, so so the law degree is no longer the safe meal ticket it was so I, th I think you shouldn't take too narrow a view of careers because we know that young people who graduate uh, uh, this year or in the next couple of years are likely to change their jobs multiple times and the federal government doesn't know which jobs will exist in 20 or 30 years time just as 30 years ago we didn't know about the number of jobs that would uh, be created by the internet, uh, for example. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, so it seems short-sighted to try and uh, uh, 
push people away from humanities and uh, it was also a self-defeating policy because they've also actually been reducing funding for some STEM areas but when they, when they gave HEX discounts or fee help discounts uh, uh, they didn't compensate universities the full uh, uh, difference of the, uh, of the money that universities get from those students so, uh, so universities actually have an incentive now to enrol more humanities students and fewer STEM students. But uh, the other thing, apart from the vocational side, is that uh, you know you're, you're going to live in your own head for a lot longer than you're going to be uh, working in a, in a paid job, and uh, so so these days you might work in paid employment for 35, 40 years, but uh, you know that's only half of your life, and you want to actually be able to uh, have a have a full and interesting life outside the work life as well. So uh, exactly, and humanities, you know, is going to give you a a head that's worth living in basically exactly and we have a lot of fun conversations at parties and social events as well <laughs> it's quite interesting and when people go for interview sorry when people go for interviews in, in in law for in law firms for example you know they're not going to ask you about your legal courses which they know about but if you did honors in history as well then that's the sort of stuff people want to talk about exactly no that's exactly right and it's so interesting because like i don't understand how you can be studying something that you're not passionate about that you're not actively learning and you can't apply that tangible information elsewhere like with the humanities it's just it's so life relevant that you can have these conversations in every single day and the critical thinking skills that you're, you're talking about that you get from research work like in the humanities and social sciences is incredible it allows us to really dissect the information saturation in this age that we're bombarded with if you've got critical thinking skills you can determine biases in these sources and you can really evaluate um, perspectives with the critical lens and you'd think that that's what people want to be pushing forward in the future as technology evolves and yeah it's it's interesting and to me it does come across quite shallow when you know politicians espouse the importance of the humanities yet implement every condition possible to discourage students from choosing a path in the humanities but yeah, anyway, your article, Flight of the Humanities, really articulated that really well. I recommend everyone at home to have a read of that one. All right, so I'm going to move on to exploring some of the central themes in your key works. So your work, Shylock in Germany, traced the details of the cultural history of the performance of Shylock in German theatre in the 19th and early 20th centuries. We've seen all sorts of comparisons between contemporary authoritarian style leaders and Hitler over the course of the last few years, but none have managed to create this fitting and reliable comparison, as the history of German anti-Semitism was so deeply embedded in modern European history that such comparisons sort of come off as historically ignorant. So my question to you, Andrew, is in what ways, either like legally codified, cultural, literary, can German anti-Semitism be traced prior to the germination of the Nazi party? Right, that's a big question. I mean, I, I got interested in this topic when I was working on the first book and came across a reference to a production of uh, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice uh, in about 1910, when, uh, which uh, was uh, uh, critical of capitalism but not anti-Semitic, in fact, had a sympathetic portrayal of Shylock, the Jewish moneylender who's like a pantomime villain in, in Shakespeare's play. And uh, I, I became interested actually in, in, in the history of how you could have two sort of competing strands of interpretation of uh, 
of this figure, one that was conventionally anti-Semitic, which is predictable. You've got, you know, this money lender who, uh, uh, you know, tries to extract a pound of flesh from the merchant, uh, the Christian merchant whom he detests, um, uh, and but is, is then defeated by uh, uh, Portia playing a lawyer who says he can't take a drop of Christian blood. Um, and... Uh, and and the figure was con was conventionally played as a as a pantomime villain and drew on all the stereotypes of the uh, Jewish moneylender that were around since uh, Shakespeare's day, even though there were hardly any Jews in in England in Shakespeare's time. Um, he was drawing more on Italian uh, sources, but. Uh, uh, I was interested in, in, in how you had these different interpretations and, and there were actors including some uh, important Jewish actors in Germany who used this figure to uh, portray, to, to, to evoke sympathy for Jews and to show how Jews were being unfairly persecuted and who used Shakespeare's figure as a strong avenging figure who was trying to uh, fight discrimination and persecution. So I had these two strands and they kind of coexisted for uh, uh, since the late 18th century into the uh, in, into the uh, 1930s. Uh, I, I don't see anti-Semitism as something which has been unchanged over over centuries. There is a version of it that says well you know hatred of Jews has always been around and that may be the case in Christian societies, but uh, uh, it's certainly changed and evolved over time. And uh, uh, the, there was traditional religious anti-Semitism, then there was economic anti-Semitism. And in the late 19th century, you got racial anti-Semitism as a political ideology. Uh, so it's been historically mutable and there's always been countercurrents and people pushing back against it, including, of course, Jewish cultural figures, which I was interested in as well. So I was trying to capture some of the complexity of that story and not see it as inevitable that uh, uh, anti-Semitism had inevitably led to, to the Holocaust. And what I also found interesting was that after 1933, the uh, Shakespeare's play became less popular in Germany than it had been previously, because there are things about it that are hard to deal with. Uh, Shakespeare gives Shylock this famous speech where he says, uh, hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, limbs, dimensions, senses, affections and passions and so on. If you prick us, do we not bleed? So he gives Sh you know, Shylock this opportunity to point eloquently to the shared humanity between Jews and Christians. And you couldn't put that speech on stage in Nazi Germany. Uh, they also had the problem that uh, in the fifth act, uh, uh, Shylock's daughter Jessica marries a Christian Lorenzo, and that was banned in, in Nazi Germany as well. So they had to kind of do violence to Shakespeare's play to perform it, and it actually became performed less often, although the performances that did come on after about 1935 tended to be quite nasty. And interestingly, in 1945, even after the liberation of Auschwitz extermination camp, uh, Goebbels and uh, his uh, favourite filmmaker, Veit Harlan, were working on a, uh, uh, a, a film project to 
do a, a play, a, a, a screen version of Merchant of Venice. So it's extraordinary that even when the war was virtually lost, uh, they were still trying to uh, make an anti-Semitic film out of this uh, play. But uh, you could only use it for those purposes by rewriting it, leaving chunks out and, and actually doing violence to Shakespeare's text. So I guess there's a kind of another level of argument there, which is that you can interpret texts in multiple ways, but uh, it's not, you, you, you can't sort of push a play like Shakespeare's work uh, beyond a certain point. You can't actually turn Shakespeare into a Nazi without actually rewriting parts of the, parts of the play, because uh, you, you, you get to a point where the script insists that, you know, we're all human and, uh, um, and you, you, yeah, you, the Nazis couldn't couldn't sort of uh, work with that. So, uh, yeah. so you can interpret texts in multiple ways, but you can't interpret them completely uh, at liberty. That's really yeah. That's that draws upon that point that you've made about the the trial level of um, like anti-Semitism, um, its functionalities, like the first put like the latent anti-Semitism um, within German society. Um, and then the fact that it was functional for the Nazi movement in that it provided a unifying ideological common denominator to a socially heterogeneous movement. And then the last element, which is just absent from um, Shylock, essentially was like the key section of the Nazi elite, first and foremost Hitler himself, generally believed radical notions of like eliminationist anti-Semitism, which you can't really draw directly from Shylock in that sense. Like you've shown a very interesting and complex light on, on a piece of theatre that is complex and that wasn't intended to be interpreted with this like tunnel vision lens. But your observation, which I found really important in that book and very interesting as well, was the gendered nature of anti-Semitism within um, Shylock. How the casting of male Jewish roles were typically weak and like unmasculine, but female um, Jewish characters were like highly sexualized. And I just thought that was so interesting because it speaks to this historically persistent role of this white male gaze in cultural spaces and more broadly like the weaponization of identities beyond the gender binary it's just it's so interesting how that is able to persist like right way back in history it's so interesting and how that was weaponized as well but i would now like to move on to your work the people's stage in imperial germany so in this publication, you sought to reconsider Social Democrats' theoretical understanding of the relationship between class division and cultural expression in Imperial Germany. To what extent do you believe can class division serve to explain social stratification within Imperial Germany? And what factors can be cited to explain the culture of the industrial working class in this period? So you've got two different points there, two very big points. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think... Imperial Germany in this period, this is like the period of classical modern industrial society which is highly stratified and there's, there's one set of you know, cleavages, if you like, that's really sort of clearly pronounced in Imperial Germany and that's the class divide and uh, that determines life expectancy, educational opportunities, uh, uh, standard of living across uh, quite a lot of domains and also access to political power. Uh, so this is almost a classical class society as Marx diagnosed it. And, uh, uh, and one of the challenges, I guess, for uh, looking at the history of class is the extent to which uh, Western societies have moved to 
that old industrial working class has been devolved and uh, partly sent offshore and has partly partly uh, you know the old classical working class uh, suburbs and communities have have ceased to exist in the way they used to but this is the classical period of, of, of class division the other line which i haven't explored in, in as much depth as the religious divide between protestants and catholics in germany which is quite profound in this period too although i have talked about anti-semitism and discrimination against jews um, so i was interested in this book in arguments that uh, the socialist working class movement in germany had become less radical because its leaders had uh, absorbed too much middle class culture from the dominant culture and uh, i thought this was an interesting case study to look at because the there were different groups of people running it at different times. You had a group of avant-garde writers who weren't necessarily committed socialists but were interested in social reform uh, and thought the working class should have the benefit of modern socially critical literature like uh, Ibsen and some of his German, uh, uh, some of the German writers influenced by him and uh, in the late 19th century obviously. Um, and uh, then you had a group of uh, sort of left Marxists running it, notably Franz Mehring, and, uh, and then you had more revisionist, reformist social democrats running it uh, uh, from 1897 onwards. And you can see different kind of strategies being tried out. And what one is, let's introduce the workers to radical avant-garde literature and... and uh, uh, and, uh, and, and they will come to an appreciation of it. Then you had, if you like, period of critical appropriation using Marxist theory that uh, let's take what is radical and progressive from middle class, the, from the German tradition of middle class literature, and uh, make, uh, you know, pass that on to the working class. And then you had the third group, which was more about uh, assimilating the workers into the dominant culture. But you did have the three different strategies being being attempted, uh, and so I found that quite interesting. Again, that you can use culture in different ways, and, and uh, I suppose one of the things I've been interested in is the intersection between culture and, on the one hand, and ideas and politics and society on the other, and the complex ways in which they've been uh, been used in different ways. Yes, like I remember you mentioning at one point in one lecture, um, Red Saxony. I don't know, it's just stuck in my mind for mm -hmm. like four years. Um, it's just so interesting, the effect of the class within that um, area and then how strong the culture was. Like it just had this strong grip on all levels of life in that area. Can you explain a bit more to people who don't know what um, the interest surrounding like Red Saxony was? Well, Saxony is this kingdom in Germany, and Germany consisted, of course, of three dozen different states before 1918, uh, three cities, kingdoms, uh, duchies, etc. And the kingdom of Saxony was uh, one of Germany's main industrial landscapes with cities like Leipzig, which is a big commercial and then industrial centre, and Chemnitz, which was a centre of the German textile industry, but the countryside throughout Saxony is dotted by factories and uh, uh, and, and you know industrial uh, 
workplaces of various kinds and uh, so it, it really does become a bit like you know the equivalent of you know Yorkshire in, in, in England during the Industrial Revolution um, and because there is such again this classical industrial blue-collar working class there before 1914 uh, there is the 1903 election in which 22 out of 23 Reichstag electorates in Saxony vote for the Social Democrats and uh, Jim Retallick in Toronto has written a, 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 an outstanding book on how the uh, uh, ruling classes and the Liberal parties and all the other parties including the anti-Semites all collude to uh, try and keep the Social Democrats out of power at the state level by manipulating the franchise and uh, so it's a fascinating study of how you know the working class is excluded from political power in imperial germany by uh, things like franchise manipulation so they change electoral law in saxony twice to try and stop the social democrats from controlling uh, the state government by adopting a, initially adopting a three-class property-based franchise which also existed in prussia and some other places in imperial germany uh, so, uh, so you know, the, Saxony is almost a classic example of these, uh, you know, the pointy end of these, uh, you know, class conflicts and conflicts over political power in Imperial Germany. It's so interesting the significance of the class division and unification through class division. How pe people can find something in common, not consciously, but just through like daily activities and um, engaging in like they would engage in sports together as well didn't they have like a thriving sports community there and, um, but now I was wanting to branch away from your published interests because we've had some previous conversations about your interest in Russian history um, as an international relations minor I'm itching you to ask a question of my own so I was wondering if you could share your opinion on the potential for um, future Russian hybrid warfare. So factoring in the topographic vulnerability Russia finds itself in and how this has escalated after the losses of the Soviet territory after its collapse, we've seen Russia further encroach on foreign territory, presumably partly due to their lack of warm water ports and landlocked geographic position. So in the process of this pursuit, we've seen Russia quite innovatively um, engage in a holistic menu of military tactics. So how do you see these Russian hybrid tactics evolving in the future? Do you believe that NATO has any capacity to engage in or be willing to participate in similar strategies of asymmetric war in the future? Yeah, I think, um, I, I, mean, I, th I think, you know, we've seen that, you know, NATO and especially the United States have capacities to engage in all kinds of technological uh, warfare from cyber warfare to drone assassinations to, uh, you know, whole palette of, of you know they've got the technical resources to, to match the uh, Russians but uh, from a historian's point of view uh, I, I think it's useful to sort of cast our minds back 30 years which I'm not you know not asking you to do that personally because that's you know probably uh, uh, you know you, you weren't around <laughs> then but but as a historian you can because uh, uh, you can reconstruct this through through historical research and imagination. Now, Thirty years ago, when when Germany was being unified, um, it was almost universally accepted that uh, uh, well that uh, it was it would be very difficult for the Soviet Union, as it then was, to accept uh, 
NATO troops in what was then East Germany. And uh, it was a big kind of diplomatic achievement to get the then Soviet Union under Gorbachev to acquiesce to uh, East Germany being part of NATO, but uh, it was, the condition was that uh, you wouldn't have non-German NATO troops or nuclear missiles stationed in East Germany. So 30 years ago, everyone kind of agrees that uh, it would be a step too far to expect the Soviet Union to uh, accept, say, American troops and missiles in East Germany. Um, and uh, arguably even uh, agreeing to German unification and uh, East Germany becoming part of NATO <clears throat> helped to undermine Gorbachev's position as Soviet leader and led to the backlash of the Russian secure or Soviet security establishment against him, which precipitated his downfall and the breakup of the Soviet Union. Now, I think we've forgotten how momentous that step was. Uh, and NATO has kind of overreached and not really taken into account Russia's security obsessions. And, and Putin was a KGB colonel in 1990, and uh, his consciousness very much formed by the breakup of the Soviet Union and uh, loss of standing and prestige of uh, the Soviet Union and Russia since then. And I'm not trying to apologize for Putin who's clearly a nasty piece of work but uh, but uh, but you know we need to understand that NATO has kind of overreached in some ways and, and neglected to take into consideration what Russia's security needs are because 30 years ago we realized we thought it was you know a step uh, too far to have non-German NATO troops in in the eastern states of Germany and now they're in the Balt. Now we've got NATO maneuvers in the Baltic states, in the territory of the former Soviet Union, very close to St. Petersburg, um, and uh, and uh, other former Soviet republics becoming allies of NATO and the West. Um, and uh, you know, if you look at how allergic America was to having a, a sort of hostile state on the island of Cuba where they still retained a naval base and they bullied Cuba relentlessly for six decades. Uh, I mean great powers like to feel secure in their own immediate environment and you know the Russians have this concept of the near abroad which is basically the former Soviet Union and former territories that belonged to the Russian Empire before that. Um, and. Uh, you know, Stalin didn't feel safe after 1945 without the Warsaw Pact between him and the West and having a whole belt of countries mm. with Soviet troops in them uh, between him and Germany and, uh, and, and West Germany and other... at any point. Well, no, he was quite paranoid on all sorts of levels. But, uh, but you yeah, know, there is this kind of, you know, fixation with security which isn't mm. unique to Russia. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think, you know, the West and NATO has kind of failed to take adequate account of the Russian obsession with security and, and needs for security. And you know, as I said, 30 years ago, American troops being stationed permanently in East Germany would have been a bridge too far. And now they're in, you know, Estonia and Poland yeah, and elsewhere. Exactly. And, uh, uh, and again, I'm not trying to make excuses for Putin, but... Uh, uh, I but, think it just uh, helps to have an understanding of the um, concerns of a, another country. I mean, that's yeah. the whole premise of like the flaws within the um, security dilemma. You know, it's really difficult mm. to try and estimate how another country is feeling. Like, yeah, well, it's another example of you know the value of historical perspective and the 
value of historical perspective is it doesn't give you the automatic answer so that you're right next time. Uh, but uh, it, it gives you a depth of understanding as to how we got to the current situation. It's like Putin annexing the Crimea. Well, it helps to know that, uh, you know, the Crimea was kind of administratively given to Ukraine in 1954 when it still had a majority Russian population. But in the Soviet Union at the time, it made no difference whether something was, no practical difference whether something was administratively assigned to uh, 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 you know, the Russian Federation or Ukraine, but, but it was quite quite an arbitrary administrative act at the time, and the population remained majority Russian. Although, if you go back before uh, the Second World War, the uh, original indigenous population of Ukraine were Crimean Tatars who were expelled by Stalin. So, really, you know, if you're going to talk about justice for Crimea, they should give it back to the Crimean Tatars. But uh, uh, but it's hard to get upset about you know Putin annexing Ukraine when it was he was kind of overturning an, an arbitrary administrative act of Khrushchev from 1954. Uh, doesn't excuse the uh, 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 other conflicts in, in eastern Ukraine, but uh, but you know again you need to see some of these things in perspective. Yeah, and it's sort of become like a buzzword, like Russian hybrid warfare. It's like this hybrid warfare is literally something that has been going on since like, the, I mean, the Peloponnesian War. They adopted hybrid tactics of like unconventional warfare. It's not anything that's new. I feel like it just benefits some people to have an idea of a threat. So I did want to wrap this interview up with a brief elaboration on the central claims and themes of your latest book, Red Banners, Books and Beer Mugs. So The Mental World of German Social Democrats. 1863 to 1914. Yeah, okay, well, I mean, we touched on this when we were talking about Red Saxony, and uh, uh, one of the things I was interested in was the uh, ways in which the German Social Democratic Party, which was the world's first mass-based political party with a million members before 19, by 1914, you know, how they were so successful at mobilising so many German workers uh, in a state where uh, workers were still largely excluded from political power, where uh, you know the class differences structured people's experiences of life so much in housing, education, uh, so many other dimensions. So I was interested in, also I guess interested in, in so far as a lot of the recent literature on Imperial Germany has stressed middle class reform movements and the fact that you had a high participation rate in, in elections. But, uh, you know, as uh, Jim Ritalik shows in his book on Red Saxony, you know, the important thing about elections isn't uh, how many people vote, it's also how much their votes are weighed and, and mm. what, what sort of outcomes yeah. there are from their votes. And uh, so I was interested in... Uh, and, and of course, I was I was drawing on on things I'd written on German social democracy over uh, quite a long time, but I uh, uh, used research in in many German regional archives to try and uh, build up a a more detailed picture of uh, the mobilisation of social democrat workers, and uh, and. Uh, I was also looking wherever I could find it for evidence of workers' own opinions and rank-and-file okay. Social Democrats' uh, own opinions. And there's a great source in, in Hamburg where uh, 
the Hamburg political police used to go into workers' pubs and eavesdrop and take notes uh, on workers' pub conversations. And if they were saying anything subversive, they would uh, write it down. now, you've got to go through lots of really boring routine reports before you find interesting nuggets. But, uh, but and, and Richard Evans discovered this source in the late 80s, and, but I've done my own research in it as well. Um, so I've looked at various aspects of uh, German socialist thought, but I also was interested in how uh, uh, attitudes to labour and work and uh, interest, you know, influenced... Uh, uh, workers' political involvement. So I was c- kind of interested in recovering some of the material basis of, uh, of of these things because there's been so much work done on on culture in the last 30 years that I thought it was necessary to restore a bit of balance and look at things like uh, the price of bread, for example. So uh, some more quantitative evidence. Yeah, and and also you know things that affected people's everyday life, like the price of bread and beer. So. Mm. Uh, um, because uh, the Social Democrats taught uh, the the members of the party, followers and voters of the movement, that uh, things like the price of bread were very much the product of the power structures in Imperial Germany, wow. because the uh, big aristocratic landowners were able to uh, increase their profits by... Uh, having tariffs on grain, for example, so that uh, they could charge more for their grain. And, yeah. and so so, uh, so, the Social Democratic Party is teaching its followers that there is a very direct relationship between who, who is in, has political power in, in this country and, uh, say, the price of bread and beer and, uh, uh, and, and, and meat because you've got the same kinds of export controls on, or import controls on meat. Uh, so it doesn't uh, clash with big uh, landowning interests. Uh, so workers are learning every time that they buy food or or or, or drink that it's affecting uh, you know the, that uh, that their weekly budget is is partly affected by uh, the political power of the landowning aristocracy, for example. Yes. So yeah. so there's quite a direct. Um, link between people's material circumstances and their politics in this period. I was interested in, given that most German men in this period spent time in the army, I I, I was looking for evidence of how uh, workers experienced uh, time in the army. Uh, Apparently most of them didn't like it, although there's some evidence that social democrats weren't such bad soldiers, partly because, you know, they were, you know, disciplined yes. in, in their attitudes. <laughs> uh, I was looking at you know what what they read uh, because uh, it's commonplace in the literature that uh, people weren't reading Marx's Capital because several hundred pages of quite difficult demanding economic theory, but they were reading lots of cheap pamphlets and newspapers that were popularizing Marx, and and so there is quite a wide diffusion. Exactly, and they would Marx's have a lot ideas. less time to be recreationally mm. reading like, um, well, political material, I suppose. Exactly, and the, the point about the working day is, is crucial. And what, what I was impressed by is I've read probably thousands of reports of uh, meetings of the party, and typically uh, you know, the local party branch uh, would uh, uh, meet on a Monday or Tuesday 
evening and people would be working nine hour days six days a week because this is when people worked on Saturdays and only had Sundays off Uh, so they're working nine hour days six days a week and uh, and, but uh, on, on a Monday or Tuesday at least once a month they're going to a local beer hall or similar venue mm. and and for a couple of hours they're they're going to a meeting where mainly someone is giving a lecture for two hours and so these are workers already worked a nine-hour day it's late at night and wow. they're listening to uh, what, what's often you know sort of lectures about sometimes about socialist ideas sometimes it's an educational topic sometimes it's a current political one it varies and you, you get really impressed by you know the uh level of kind of uh, uh, interest in ideas and uh, desire for education of workers who typically had left school by 14. Exactly, I was just about to say that, like the way that they were able to just sit down and concentrate, they must have been very passionate about that topic, mm. very interested in... Yeah, so something quite impressive about that and, and you don't always get records of discussion there isn't always discussion afterwards sometimes there is sometimes there's debate sometimes it's quite uh, lively debate in went on more politically sensitive topics of the day mm. uh, like german colonialism for example oh. but uh, uh, but you know you you become quite impressed by you know, the capacity of workers to sort of as i said already worked nine hour days to sit and listen to uh, a, a lecture which might be one and a half, two hours on, exactly. on sometimes challenging topics, and uh, uh, and people are doing this in their hundreds, and uh, especially you know, the bigger party branches. Uh, I attended a uh, an, an ALP branch meeting once because I was invited to go and speak to them about higher education policy, and yeah. uh, it was in the back room of the Pineapple Hotel. It wasn't nearly <laughs> as impressive as these Berlin workers around 1900 or Hamburg or, yeah, or Leipzig or wherever it was. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, uh, you know, these these were on a much bigger scale. Uh, so I was interested in in again, you know, interaction between ideas and uh, the social and political uh, life of the time and, uh, and and how ordinary working people proce- process this stuff through their involvement in the Social Democratic Party. Exactly, because those ideas would have been very, very grounded in probably like lived experience. You know, like you can sit down listening to lectures on abstract theory for a long time if you have a um, good level of concentration. But what must have captivated them was the way that this theory directly influences their lived experience, their daily life. Because these things like they would probably have been, I wouldn't be surprised if they'd been struggling to put food on the table or these are very emotionally and personally sensitive issues that their politics is, as opposed to someone who was maybe a little bit, a bit more conservative, their politics is more of a recreation, like this Mm -hmm. is their lived life. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, you can see people joining the dots too in some of these pub conversations where, for example, they're talking about, you know, how they can't afford decent meat this week and they say well this is because you know the you know government uh, you know is banning import of cows from Denmark allegedly on health reasons you know because Hamburg's close to Schleswig-Holstein and Denmark and uh, and uh, the uh, uh, and and they're saying well this is because of the big farmers who are you know the Prussian aristocrats who are uh, uh, trying to keep up the prices of their livestock by keeping out foreign competition they're also uh, banned American canned meat again on slightly spurious health grounds and uh, uh, and you can see them joining the dots and then they say well the answer is we need to organize to 
get more more seats in the Reichstag to influence the laws because uh, the laws are tilted against us. So yeah. you can see them joining the dots and connecting their weekly and daily economic situation with the structures of political power in Imperial exactly. Germany. And it feeds into their attitude to the monarchy, which, uh, you know, they're mostly anti-monarchist uh, uh, as well. So. Yeah, I find that so interesting. That is a very rich historical source. Like, just those um, conversations would have provided you with information about, like, the politics of the time, um, international relations even, like, diplomatic relations between Germany and Denmark. Or Like, that is it's so interesting how much information that you can derive just from an every week conversation between the working class people, which, I mean, a few years back, not a lot of people would put a lot of value in that um, demographic. Yeah, well, you've, you've got to sift through a lot of really routine police reports. And a lot of them are, <laughs> you know, the, the, you know the, the, the sort of, you know, uh, Constable Schultz uh, uh, writing the same thing every day that I went, went to the, this pub and that pub and that pub and on this street corner there were, you know, 20 people waiting for, queuing for, to see if they could get work on the docks, for example. Uh, and uh, you had a lot of that where people would write the same thing. But some, some cops did actually take an interest in what people were reading and me mentioned if they because workers would read newspapers aloud to each other, say, "Oh, listen, look at this story," and and wow. and sometimes they'd even they'd even I mean they'd spend most of their time drinking and playing dice and talking, <laughs> but after that, the fourth most common occupation was kind of reading the newspapers. Yes, and, and if the publican was a social democrat, they'd always have the local social democratic party paper and the party's sort of humorous satirical cartoon paper lying out as well. And, and that got read in thousands and thousands of copies. That that, wow. that humorous magazine was genuinely popular, over three hundred thousand copies uh, uh, a week uh, being being sold, and and it meant it was being read by multiple people because uh, copies be you know, passed around in pubs and yeah exactly and, and in big working class households. So people are reading a lot, and 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 their opinions are being formed by by what's in these. Uh, papers and uh, uh, so uh, yeah but you you read an awful lot of police reports and it takes a <laughs> while before you strike gold in them uh, yes. uh, and, and, and s s some of them have really spidery 19th century German handwriting too oh. so you know that's another yeah. skill of the historian <laughs> which is learning to read uh, old handwriting yes it's probably languages. a struggle for you to read my <laughs> handwriting in my essays too <laughs> Yeah, well, no. I sometimes say to students when we go back to having sit-down essays where you write in longhand in in yeah. in, in uh, exam script books that uh, you know, having spent a lot of time reading uh, old handwriting in in the archives, I can read just about anything. But please don't take that as a challenge. Well, yeah, I can't wait to read Red Banners. I'm very excited to purchase that one. Um, so it should be available to order online by Haymarket Publishers in October, that's correct? Yeah, the, uh, yes. there's a hardback edition out with Brill uh, from the Netherlands, but uh, that's something like 130 euros. Oh. <laughs> so it's really for the library market, but uh, okay. there will be a paperback edition out in October uh, with Haymarket Publishers in the US, which you'll be able to order online. So uh, I'd suggest people wait for the... Uh, 
paintback edition because the uh, hardback's probably too expensive. But uh, Yes, no, I'm very excited. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Andrew. Like, honestly, your insights will never, like, cease to amaze me. I think that you were one of the lecturers that actually encouraged me to want to pursue being a historian. You have a lot of insight and a lot of... Um, very interesting stories as well from your experiences in Germany too. But thank you so much for joining me today. And finally, a big thank you to our audience for tuning into Historical Hi-Fi, UQ Modern History Society's very own podcast on all things history. We're not done yet, so keep your eyes and ears out for the next episode. Thank you.